This is David Schumann here with our very special guest, uh, my father, Howard Schumann, part of the Life, Learning, and Success uh, podcast. Last episode, we, we talked with Shane Stafford, who was a professional athlete and now has become a coach. Here we're talking with someone who has been a coach for a very long time, uh, has accomplished tremendous things as a coach, and uh, he, he's not just my father, but he was my coach as well. Um, but he's coached for over 40 years, closing in on 50, 50 years. And um, we're, gonna, we're privileged enough to speak with him. He's probably, though he doesn't keep the records, probably the winningest coach in, of all time, probably in any sport in New Jersey history. Um, so we're here with Howard Schumann. Uh, my father and coach. So before I before I start, coach um, and father, uh, I, I want to go. The purpose of this this uh, podcast is really to dive in to help other people understand what uh, they can do to be successful in anything they do, whether it's coaching, athletics, uh, business, and they're, they're fundamental things. So I, I want to dive first into. Uh, before we talk about your, your career and some of your philosophy, when you decided you wanted to be a coach, what was it that made you decide that you wanted to be a coach? Well, what made me decide I wanted to be a coach was that I enjoyed sports and I wanted to do something in life that I could enjoy and that I could help other people. And when I thought about what would fit that bill, I thought coaching... I thought I would enjoy it and that it could help the kids I coach to have a better life. So that's actually what made me decide to try coaching. And you started out, and, and we'll dive even before your past, it, when you were a young man, but um, you started out on a different path. So you originally, when you were in college, you started out and you were a phys ed teacher for many years as well as a coach. We started out as a business major. so. What made you transition to decide that you weren't interested in pursuing something from a financial gain standpoint or business standpoint, but you were interested in, in pursuing coaching and working with people? What was it that made you decide that you wanted to go into When I was originally in college, and I was a business major, and I thought that I would uh, maybe join the FBI or do something in accounting, and... I got a part-time job after school where I was working in an accounting office. And when I worked in that accounting office as part-time, after two months of watching that, I realized that I did not want to be an accountant. And though I still <laughs> liked the idea, because that, in those days, I don't know what it is now, in order to join the FBI, you either had to have a CPA or have passed the bar. And I decided that uh, since not only was I working in the accounting office, but I was working in the tax department, and a lot of the guys were in, uh, had been in the FBI. And when I told them why I was doing that, they said, well, we want you to know most of the things that you see in the FBI on TV and the movies are exciting, but two or three of us have worked there, and most of the work we did dealt with accounting, etc., catching when people were doing the wrong things. So I decided at that point there, that maybe I should look for a, uh, a, a different occupation 
one that I would enjoy more, and one that I could help people with more. Now, uh, from a so that's when you then transitioned into uh, becoming a physical education. Right, I, I switched my major the next year. When when did you know that? Um, when was like was there an aha moment that you knew coaching was for you? What 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 was what was it about coaching? When did you really know? Okay, this I chose the right career. What was it about it that and, and when? Well, when I started coaching, when I came out of the army, so this was nineteen sixty six, and they gave me the head coaching job in track at the school where I had, uh, taught for a few months before I went in the Army. And the funny thing is, the man who had been the head coach who was uh, in his uh, early 50s, and he agreed that it was good to have someone younger take over, and I thought he was definitely right. Now that I'm 75 and I look back, maybe he wasn't so old when he was in his 50s right. and I took the job from him. But as soon as I started, I, I saw that uh, the kids were enthusiastic and uh, that the success that I was help, able to help them to achieve made them feel better about themselves and it was something that fortunately right from the beginning I was pretty good at even though uh, I did make some mistakes in the beginning but the kids were pretty understanding of my own mistakes and that helped me to be understanding of theirs and uh, we had a lot of success the kids uh, did very well. I saw that it seemed to help their own self-image and uh, they felt good about themselves and we had a great camaraderie. I think we had over 100. Uh, at that time, it was oh, boys only I was coaching, boys on the team and I enjoyed it tremendously and I enjoyed seeing uh, uh, the kids su uh, have success individually and our team have success. And I think right away from the first year I coached, I realized that uh, this was something I could be good at, I could enjoy, and that I could help, uh, especially young people, to have a better life at. So I think I knew right away from the first year, this is what I wanted to do with my life. Okay, so, so in connecting with athletes and getting them to perform, what, what are some of the things that you think are critical to having... And, and this could apply to really anything, but, you know, athletes are a great microcosm of this. What will, what is it something that you do, and, and it may be something you do naturally or maybe something you consciously think about, what is it some of the things that you do to connect with athletes? You've been coaching when you were young and not much older than them. We were almost their peers to now as uh, 75 years old and you are connecting with the same exact age group as you did 50 years ago. Um, what, what are some of the fundamental things that you think that you're able to do that gets the best out of those athletes and, and creates that, that connection to, 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 to get them to be great? I think the thing that helped me as a coach right from the beginning till now was this year. I always cared about the kids. I always wanted us to be successful. I always wanted us to win. But I always cared about the kids. And I think that when, whether it's kids, because I've coached at um, college, at Columbia University, at high school, inner city, suburbs. Uh, I've coached at uh, junior high school. I coach recreation after high school with young kids. 
I think that the thing that was most important was that wherever I coached, the kids knew, and I say kids even though the college has really grown up, that I cared about them. And if the athletes you coach know that you care about them, then no matter how hard you push them, they know you care about them and they're willing to keep work hard, keep working as hard as possible because they know that you have their best interests at heart. You can be the best coach in the world, but if the kids think you don't have their best interests at heart, it doesn't matter because to me, you're not gonna be successful because they'll look right through you and know that you only care about yourself and not about them. So I think that was the one constant from the time I first started coaching till now. Then the second factor is you need to be knowledgeable in what you're coaching to help the kids you coach. So even if you care about the kids, but if you don't know what you're doing, you can't help them and you can't be successful. So therefore it is vital that you be knowledgeable about what you're teaching. If you have done the sport and you have some knowledge, then it's great. But then you still have to go to clinics, learn more, do all the things that you can to learn more so you can be a better coach, more knowledgeable to help the athletes that you coach. And that is the second thing that I thought was vital. And then the third thing really is a matter of, especially now more than before, is that almost all the athletes to some extent want to have a feeling that they're enjoying what they're doing and having fun. That may seem very hard when you're in a sport, especially like I am in track across country now, where it's very, very hard working. But we try to make it so that it is enjoyable for them. They enjoy their teammates. They enjoy coming to practice. Before every practice, I'll go into the cafeteria and I'll say loud and clear, and mind you, everyone's personality is different, but I'll say loud and clear, okay, it's the best time of the day, track practice, let's go. Now the kids may laugh and the other kids who are on the team, aren't on the team may laugh, but you know what, some of them wind up coming out for the team because that's a great philosophy, hey, that we're going the best time of the day. When we do our warm up, we then sit and stretch for about 15, 20 minutes and it's not like, oh, you can't talk. I want the kids to talk and socialize as long as they're doing what they have to do so they're part of something. They feel as though they're part of something. That's important, especially nowadays where a lot of kids and athletes are not part of anything. So they feel they're part of something. This is their family away from their family. And there's nothing wrong with telling some jokes and funny antidotes, letting the kids tell funny things. Uh, as, as, as long as it's done within the concept of what we're doing as a team so that they look forward to coming to practice. Then when you work, work is work and it's hard work. Then when you finish working, you're stretching, doing your core work, again, you can talk, socialize, as long as you're doing the work you have to do. And then when it comes to, in our case, the meets, but it could be a football game, soccer game, volleyball game, when you're doing that, you're concentrating on what you're doing, do the best you can, and Whatever happens, happens as a coach. Um, the things that are done wrong, that's your job to correct them so you can help the athletes do better. The things that are done right, you tell them what they have done right so they keep doing that. And most important is this here. You never put down any kid. If they haven't done well, then what you do is let them know we can do better next time 
by working hard and correcting it. And if they have done well, you tell them, great job. Now if we keep working hard, we can get even better and better. It, you, you talked a lot about, um, I'll encapsulate it with, with your basically your philosophy. Your philosophy is something that has been with you and you can tell me how long it is when I, when I say it, but you, you have these things on your shirts, and, you, and when I ran for you in high school, it was the same exact way. Positive attitude is contagious. Negative attitude is destructive. First of all, before you explain it, obviously it's fairly, you know, it, it speaks for itself, self-explanatory. Right. But um, how did you come up with that? It's, it's unique. I've never seen in, in all the years I've, uh, that I've been coaching myself, working with athletes, I've never seen anyone else, and it's amazing because it's very self-explanatory, I've never seen any other coach use, they might use it in a different way, but that exact type of philosophy, uh, which is so direct, um, and I think athletes connect with immediately uh, on it. When did you come up with it, and and how how is that a part of everything you do? Well... I think I always thought it, but I didn't actually verbalize it. And actually, where I'm coaching now, we have it on the back of our T-shirts. The girls made it up, not me. But I think it's something I always thought that noticing that when the kids were positive about something, they were able to encourage the other athletes on the team to do better as well as themselves. But when they were negative, they tended to drag themselves down and the other athletes on the team. And I have seen coaches lose their jobs because their teams fell apart, not because they didn't have talent or athletes who were good, but because of negative attitudes on the team that eventually wound up reflecting on the coach. So it's really self-serving for the coach to have this attitude, even though that's not my purpose. Conversely, when you see a team that's successful, Almost every time that team is successful because those athletes have a positive attitude which permeates throughout the team and encourages them in bad times to keep plugging along and in good times that we can keep going better and better and accomplish amazing goals. Now, as an example in running, I use a very simple example with the athletes. If you're running and the person next to you is weakening and you say to that person, oh, this, excuse my language, this sucks. Well, then both of you will wind up stopping and not doing well. But if that person is weakened and you say to that person, you can do it, just kind of follow me. Well, you yourself will do better. You'll feel better because you're helping a person and that person will feel better and will try harder. So this is something that any sport, any sport it pertains to. A positive attitude is contagious and the team, it helps the team and the individuals. Negative attitude will always destroy a team and the individuals. Occasionally, athletes go through slumps, you know, or, you know, in running, it might be they have a string of, uh, of bad meets, you know, in football, maybe they didn't have a good game, baseball, they're, they're not hitting the ball well. Well, how do you help an athlete work through a difficult time period where they're not performing at the level that, you know, you might be expecting to or, and, or that they expect to. And how, how do you get them through that, that period? Okay, I think as a coach, you have to 
be analytical and analyze what the problem is. If I was a baseball coach and someone is a slump, sometimes they may just have to work their way through it. There may be some things that they can do technically. As a track coach, I have to analyze and say, why is this person struggling? It may be if they're a runner, maybe they've trained too hard. And what's happening is they're wearing down and they need to have a few days of taking it easy. Maybe they haven't trained hard enough. Maybe they haven't done enough speed work. Maybe they haven't done enough distance work. If it's a hurdler, I may analyze and take a look. And the best thing there is, if you have it, is to film these things on a technical event or a technical sport. I may take a look and say, listen, here's what we have to work on to get better, that your trail leg and hurdling is not quick enough. Or there's something wrong with your lead leg. You're not leading with your knee. So it may be that there is a technical thing that can say this is what's wrong and if we work at it and correct it with a positive attitude we can make you better. The worst thing you can do is just tell the person you know you stink or you're not to this or that and then the person gets discouraged and gives up. But as a coach you have to analyze every single athlete is different and you have to analyze what is the problem and how can I help that athlete to fix the problem and be better. How do you motivate, um, one of the things I, I firmly believe, but you know, we're in this, today's society, everybody wants everything to be equal and every, everybody wants everything to be fair, okay? And, and one of the things, uh, you know, I've always believed is that, uh, you know, every athlete is different. Um, every person in business is different and, and uh, every person that you work with is different. They come from different backgrounds. They come from uh, different family situations. Um, how do you, do you believe in that you treat every athlete equal? Do you treat, customize everything for your athlete? How, how do you do that and, and maintain fairness? You know, how, how, how do you develop each individual athlete um, from, from a development standpoint and, and at the same time, you know, you have a fair environment. This is what I tell every athlete. At the beginning of the season, I tell the athletes this. Every, every single one of you is important and matters. Every one of you matters. Every one of you is important. But not everyone has the same ability. Some people have more ability than the others. What we're going to try and do is maximize the ability you have. However, when it comes to who's going varsity, who's going JV, who's going freshman, it doesn't matter if you're a freshman, sophomore, junior, or senior. Those who have shown to be doing the best are those in track who are going to be starting as varsity, or of course, country with a seven with varsity, and the other people will be further back. However, this thing is ongoing and flexible. If somebody improves, and it's very easy in track because you're dealing with times and distances. Right. If somebody improves, well, they can take your place in varsity. If someone runs, then now they're in the top seven, even though they ran the JV race, then they move up and you move down. Now, if somebody falls or something, we're not talking about that, but we're talking all things being equal. It's not that you're stuck in that position. It's not static. You can improve, but realize this. Whomever the best people are, who are performing the best, assuming that they're doing everything they're supposed to, coming to practice, etc., 
That is who's going to be varsity. It can change. And everyone understands it. And when they understand that, we never have a problem. And unfortunately, many coaches have a problem with that because they don't make that clear. Or maybe the kids or the athletes don't trust them. And then if it's a senior whose place is taken in varsity by a freshman or sophomore, you get, they're disgruntled, you have dissension, the team does poorly, and the coach gets fired. So I make it clear, and I have to say, the athletes on the team understand it. We have a parents' meeting, and I explain it to the parents. In college, you don't have a parents' meeting. The, uh, the parents usually aren't there. But at high school level, we do that, and I explain it to them, and they understand it. And when you've done that, people know that you're fair, and I've had it always work out. Now, it can be harder in a sport like football, soccer, basketball, where it can be debatable, well, who's really better? Right. But in that case, you just have to say, the coaches and myself are going to make that decision from what we see, what's best. And if you want to be on the team, you have to abide by it. If not, because we want as many kids as possible, as many athletes as possible on the team. I'm not talking about pro, we're cutting. If not, then this is the wrong team for you. How, um, going to a new environment, you've been in, you've been lucky that you've, uh, and you've been very successful. I, not lucky that you're successful, but you've been in, it's not like you've jumped around to different positions. You've been in pretty much the same places. I think you've been at three different schools as far as a career, other than when you coached in college. Uh, one, two, and then actually four, 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 four Kennedy, Kennedy, for right. Um, and Kenny's a good example because you're only there for a short time period. How do you, how do you go into a new situation as a coach, a new coach, a new environment, and gain the trust of the players who don't know you at all um, in a short time period that you're trying to begin to put together a team? And obviously, you're going to have a long-range view uh, in most cases, but how do you develop uh, that, that initial trust of, of athletes who don't know you and, you know, you've been hired and they don't necessarily know if you're an expert or not. How, how do you develop that trust in your athletes? Okay, that's a good question. Obviously, the longer you're at a place, the easier it is to do that because they know you, it's passed on. You may be getting uh, uh, brothers, sisters, in my case, children, grandchildren, okay? <laughs> so that it's easier. But when you come to a school, that is a difficult thing to do. And actually, the, the way I've done it, um, when I've started, wherever I've started out originally, is this. One, I would try always be honest with the athletes you're coaching. I would tell them my background, uh, what I can do to help them, that what I want to do is to help them be the best they can be, how I plan to do it, and that I care about them, but that I'm going to push them because that's my job and they wouldn't be here if they want, didn't want to be the best they can be. And then what happens is, Hopefully, you have some success early, which means that they then have some confidence in you. Right. If you don't, it can be very, very difficult. All right? Now, if you've coached for a while, sometimes you have a reputation, and your reputation can precede you. Other people say, well, you know, uh, Prince William and Holy Ann said, well, okay, I, when I was at this other school, I'm in the New Jersey State Hall of Fame. I'm this and that. So I said, okay, well, you know, he must be pretty good. I've coached uh, Olympians, NCAA champions. Okay, so he must be pretty good. So you're trying to use that not to glorify yourself, but so that they will have confidence in what you're doing. When you went, when you were a young coach, okay, and uh, I, I've been coaching now 
back, I guess it was 16 years, but um, when you were a young coach, you came in and you were coaching junior high school in Harlem, you had never ran track yourself, never, uh, I should say competed as a runner, never competed as a cross-country athlete, um, you were hired to, to coach um, in Harlem, tough environment. How did you get those athletes who, who didn't know you from a whole long? This is going way back to the beginning, but how, how did you, it's very helpful for, for anybody who's, who's coaching for the first time or in a leadership role for the first time. How did you uh, get those athletes to, to, to trust you? What were some of the, what were some of the th- things that you utilized within your tool set Having no experience of ever coaching, not you've been coaching now for fifty years, so you, you you know you go into a new environment now and have no problem as far as and a lot of times people know who you are, so that kind of helps a little bit, right? Um, and obviously, when they hear it's Coach Schumann coming to coach them, you know most people expect you know that that you're going to be a pretty knowledgeable person. But go back to when you were in the beginning. How did you do it when you had never ever coached track before? You weren't a track athlete. You know, um, and uh, how did you go about doing that? Well, first of all, it helped me that uh, I was a phys ed teacher, so I had access. At that time, I just coached only boys in the school, even though it was a co-ed school. So I had access to everyone. So I was, the kids had some familiarity with me, and um, I had access to almost all of uh, the boys who were in the school, the young men who were in the school. So that helped me as far as numbers. Second, as far as what to do, I basically was kind of learning on the job, even though I, I, I used to run myself. So I had something, but basically a lot was learning on the job. And quite frankly, I made some big mistakes. All right? um, uh, I had the best sprinter in the city and we had a flat tire going up to the Manhattan City Championship and we got there late, I should never have let him run but we got there just, it was starting, I let him run and he tore his hamstring, right? All right? So some of these things you learn by yourself. How, how and, and I wanna, I wanna interject in that. So, you, you know, trial and error obviously is, right. is basically, you know, part of what you're saying but um, when those things happen, an athlete tears his hamstring and you're a new coach and he's one of the better athletes, how do you then continue to regroup and get yourself in the mindset that you could achieve, uh, get these athletes to be the very best? Like, what are some of the things that you would do within yourself? Not, not what you, you, you know, you communicate to the athletes, but how, how do you prepare yourself mentally to handle those kind of situations where you're not as knowledgeable and you have to get these athletes to believe in what you're doing? Well, first of all, it's amazing how athletes, contrary to what a lot of people think, how, actually I'm trying to get the right word, how much they're willing to give you the benefit of the doubt. Resilient, most maybe, kids. or? Benefit of the doubt that when you screw up, Instead of blaming you, they kind of well, we'll we'll try and do 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 better because there's certainly a lot of room for blame when the best kid in the city pulls his hamstring, and 
the year after that, I had the best 400 meter kid, and after we won this big meet where I used him three times and said practice was voluntary, he came and stupidly I gave him a workout instead of just easy running, and he pulled his hamstring. So, unfortunately, those kids were learning the hard way because of me. So you try to learn, but the kids never turned on me. I can just say the kids I coached, and these were tough kids, it was the inner city. And some of the things you learned the hard way, some of the things, well, you try to talk to people or read, they didn't have internet, etc. But I remember the first year, team from Brooklyn won the city championship. We were Manhattan, and starting the second year, we won the Manhattan championship. Every year we were there, six years. I went up to the Brooklyn coach and said, hey, could you give me a tip on how you did it? And basically, he blew me off. And he said, <laughs> I just have the best kids. He wouldn't tell me anything. But in a way, it was good because whenever anyone asked me from then on, I would try to help them. I remembered how that guy blew me off. And he did blow me off, okay? As simple as that. But a lot had to do with the kids themselves. They were willing they were more willing to put up with my mistakes than I was to put up with their mistakes because they were great kids. And then you try to learn more to get better. As you become more experienced, you become a better coach. What happens sometimes is as coaches get much older, they have more experience and they know more, but they lose their drive. All right? Now, fortunately, I haven't lost that. Remember, when I was young, sometimes I was too excitable. We went... Uh, one year to the championship, it came down to the relay. I knew I had the best relay. The weakest kid was going first, Robert. And I knew if we were in the ballpark, we would win, we'd be the championship. And I, I basically picked him up and said, you're gonna do this, you have to throw this, and then we're gonna be the champions on it. He took off so good, had a giant lead. As he's coming around for the last stretch, I'm actually thinking, what I'm going to say when I'm chosen coach of the year. And I was 10 yards before where the baton was passed off. And as he turned to me and he said, coach, you forgot to give me the baton. <laughs> <laughs> so we were disqualified. It was all my fault. Then I realized although enthusiasm is incredibly important for a coach. If you don't have enthusiasm, how can the athletes have it? However, as a coach, it has to be tempered with making sure you're doing what you have to do. So that kind of taught me a, a, a lesson there, there too. How, um, and, and now I'm gonna fast forward because you, you talked about, uh, I'm jumping around a little bit, but the, the, the injury, how has it, athletes, have they changed? You know, you've coached in the inner city, you've coached in, middle class uh, neighborhood and now you coach in, in a school that probably m many more upper class uh, athletes go to. Do athletes change across those demographics? Are they looking for similar things from a coach? Um, I, I understand that everybody has different uh, um, situations at home, but the actual athlete and what motivates them, What are, are there common themes that that you see across athletes and enable you to be successful no matter what type of uh, environment it is? I've coached athletes from six years old to 25 years old, and this is what they all have in common. They want a coach who can help them to be better and be successful. 
at every single level. And as long as you can do that, and you can do that in a way that the athlete knows that you care about their welfare as well as the team, because you want the team to do well and the individual, then I don't see any difference as far as coaching it. What they want is someone who can help them to be better. Some athletes are more motivated than others. Those who are not real motivated, it's your job to try and motivate them more. If you can't, unless they have beyond belief talent, they're not going to be real well. Those who are very motivated, you kind of ride that and you have to be careful that you don't wind up getting them hurt because they're so motivated they want to do much, maybe more even than they should do. But the bottom line, and this is going back from 1966 to 2016, whomever I've coached, what they all have in common is they want to be better and they want someone who can help them to be the best that they can be. And that's how it is. It, um, when I interviewed Shane, and, and he's, he's only in his first year of coaching, but I think he's very perceptive because he was a quarterback, he said, to, he said that the athletes know very quickly whether the person is there for them and knows what he's doing versus someone who doesn't. And he said the athletes know. He's like, I could see it even in my first year of coaching when he feels like he connects with them. And he says, I could see it when their coach doesn't know and they don't connect with him and don't believe in it. And he said, I could see it when uh, they do. Do you agree with that? He's got it 100% correct. And if he keeps it in mind, he'll wind up being a great coach if he gets great athletes. But he's 100% right. There's an old coaching saying that's true. It doesn't, know how much, it doesn't matter how much you know if the kids know that you don't care about them. So you have to care about them. But having said that, you have to be knowledgeable to help them. Right. You can care about them all you want, but if you're a uh, lineman and you can't teach them how to do the proper technique, or if you're a javelin thrower and you don't know how to properly throw the javelin, no matter how much you love them and care about them, you can't help them at all. So it takes both. You have to care about them, that comes first, and then you have to know what you're doing to help them. You know? And you know, that's really in a nutshell what Shane said, what yeah. coaching is all about. That's it in a nutshell. Okay, a couple of interesting things. By the way, let me add one other thing, along with recruiting the best athletes that you can. <laughs> right. Okay. Obviously, you must have talent in order, and everyone has different levels of talent, um, but you want to get the best out of them, and I think, I think you definitely communicated that. Um, as far as the jelly donut, okay, <laughs> you, ha you have a very unique thing. And uh, I, I, I think it's one of those things that not only is it unique uh, uh, in what you do to recruit athletes, but it might be unique to yourself, but it could be used as a tool. It doesn't have to necessarily be that thing for somebody else to utilize something else to, 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 to get them uh, to be excited about it. Um, and I, you know, I saw it actually, I thought it was a very nice Technique that the coach at Old Tapano, a coach with does at the end of camp, the last day, he has an ice cream truck come and all the kids go and get ice cream, which I thought was very, very crafty. And, and you know, after working so hard, he give them something that that they gravitate towards that's, you know, it's candy, it's, it's uh, a reward. Um, the jelly donut that you use to recruit athletes in your first 
your first meeting. Now, I guess when this goes out uh, to my 1.6 million Twitter followers and everybody else, you might have coaches doing it incorrectly and lining up and doing jelly donuts at their, at their meetings. But uh, explain the philosophy behind it and, and, and uh, you know, why you think, it, what it is and the philosophy and what, what you think makes it so successful. Well, it is vital as a coach if you want to be successful in the sense of having teams that accomplish things to get out and recruit. And when I say recruit, I'm talking legally, get out as many kids, athletes at any level where you want to be successful to get as many out for the team. Now, I myself personally used to love jelly donuts. I used to eat a ton of them. Now I don't eat them anymore because my wife says it's not good for me. So I really don't eat that many anymore. But I thought if I'm having a meeting and I want to get athletes out to come out, well, how can I get them out, especially for a sport like track and cross country that's so hard? It's not like football, you have thousands in the stands. Basketball, the most fun sport, everything about it is fun. So I thought, you know what? I'll give at the end of the meeting, I'll give out donuts. That'll encourage kids to come to the meeting, all right? And it does encourage kids to come to the meeting, and it becomes like a shtick where they oh, we're gonna get a donut at the end of the meeting. Now, once someone said to me when I was coaching at Saddlebrook, you know, there are guys come to the meeting, they're getting free donuts, and they won't come out for the team anyway. Oh, well, who cares? Let's say 10 people come out, and they're just coming out for the donuts. Well, maybe one or two might decide after they hear the talk about what we're gonna to do to come out. So that never bothers me. So I've done that wherever I've been that when we have our preseason meeting, whatever the sport, that at the end we give out donuts and it is incredibly popular. When we make the announcement, we say that the meeting is gonna be Thursday at 3 p.m., uh, bring a pen, bring a pal, and delicious donuts will be served. And after a while, that kind of becomes a joke, and the kids say, hey, are we gonna have donuts? And then sometimes when we accomplish something, so in cross country now, and our toughest course that we run, we go to this church, and it's seven miles, and it's two and a half miles straight uphill. We say as soon as the first people get there, the next day at practice, we'll have donuts from, and they say, oh, we don't want donuts, we want it from the barn, where they make it fresh. <laughs> and we say, okay. And the funny thing is, we didn't have anyone made it until uh, a week ago. And when they made it, I said, well, okay, you know, we made it. I said, but I don't want to give you the donuts tomorrow because uh, I'm not heading in that direction. So I'll give it three days from now. And they said, no, 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 a promise is a promise. So I had to have the assistant coach get the donuts from the barn to bring it the next day. So it works for me. And I was once at a clinic, and I just can't think of who the South Carolina coach was, but at that time, it was a long time, he was very successful, and he actually did something similar, but it was different. He would say how he gave his athletes candy when they did well, which was really kind of the same philosophy. It's not that he couldn't buy the candy, or the kids can't buy the donuts, but it all buys into this whole thing of the team, and we're doing this, and sometimes kids from the other teams will want to get donuts, and we're now at Holy Angels, I noticed things was last year or the year after the soccer team had donut for their team after a practice. Now, kids on my team said, hey, that's not fair to copy you. But I said, no, imitation is the highest point of flattery. So I take that as a compliment. 
So that's how it all evolved, and we still do it. Um, yeah, I, I think it's 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 uh, psychologically it's really interesting because that you know athletes, especially nowadays, you you know. 30 years ago, people didn't know there was much health. Everybody knows everything about health. And so the, the, uh, you would think in the brain, right, that everybody would know, okay, well, these are not, uh, this is not what should be eating as an athlete. But it actually works as a reward system for attending the meeting. And then you end up picking up a, a couple people that here, uh, you know, may not have, wanted to come out that came there and they say hey you know I do want to be part of this it's a it's a, it's an interesting I know I know you don't think about it that that deeply but it's it's a tremendous well actually I do think about it because sometimes okay. some teachers will say to me you know you're doing something that's unhealthy you're having kids eat donuts that's not healthy for them and I would say well you know what you know it's just uh, once in a while etc but a, a humorous thing is that um, I think this was last year in track before our first meet, I was talking to kids about what we have to do to prepare for it. And I said, and remember, what you eat is very, very important. And especially with girls very concerned about eating disorders. I want them to eat, but eat properly. I said, it's very important to eat properly. You know, you want to lay off all the, the desserts, the carbohydrates. You want to do this, that. I went through about a 20-minute spiel. And then after it was over, I said, oh, oh, and since it's our last practice for the meet, we'll have donuts after practice. And the kids cracked up. I said, are you serious? <laughs> That's really funny, actually. Um, I think, you know, some, some of the interesting things that uh, you, you touched upon as far as building teams, uh, working with young athletes, I bet you this one thing has changed, and, and maybe you can explain how you deal with it now versus the past. Parents. Uh, I'm sure when you first started coaching, uh, they were rarely involved in the process. Um, now they're usually heavily involved in the process in some way, shape, or form, so obviously some more than others. What what would your you know what would you say is the best way or, or how, how do you deal with parents and in, in including them in the process um, and, and helping them you know everybody thinks their athletes getting a, a scholarship nowadays there's so much misinformation out there um, how, how do you manage that process with parents? Okay, uh, parents and coaches are one of the biggest issues uh, involved in athletics at a high school level right now, one of the biggest issues. I've been fortunate. Most, the great, great majority of the parents that uh, I've been involved with have been great. And uh, at Saddlebrook, most of them were, at Holy Angels, they're incredibly great. But what I really do myself is this here. Since I'm at a school now where either the kids take a bus home or if they're an athlete, they a lot of times have to be picked up by the parents, etc. Whenever I see a parent with a kid, I make it a point to go over to that parent, to say hello, shake their hand, tell them what a pleasure it is, which it is with most kids, to be coaching their child. All right? And therefore, we have a positive influence rather than uh, an adversarial influence. I'm going to say the great majority of parents Really, they want the best for their kids, but most of them are pretty reasonable. Once in a while, 
There may be a parent who only cares about their own kid. Now, I've been fortunate, holy angels, I really haven't seen that. But once in a while, that will happen. And when that happens, basically, you know, you hope you're not on an island, you explain things, but you may need help from your athletic director, your principal, etc., to make certain that that parent does not overstep their boundaries. And when that happens, a lot of times, you're going to have to go up to the next level. But for myself, I've been very fortunate that I have mostly had great relationships with the parents. And we do have a meeting, which I think is a good idea, all right, before the season, where we discuss everything with the parents. And I think the meeting serves a good purpose that you lay out what's going to be done and what the parents can expect or not expect. And this will set the right tone because you're trying to avoid running into the problem and not have to deal with it. It's much easier to avoid it and have a positive thing with the parents than once there's a problem to solving it. Okay, I got, I'm going to take a dive back. Now, uh, those of you who don't know, I know C- Coach talked about uh, jelly donuts, but he's actually one of the most fit uh, people you'll ever see at, at 75 years old. He works out every single day. And, and that brings me to a couple things. Um, how important do you feel as a leader, uh, regimen and um, uh, having a structure is to, to becoming a, a very good or great leader? Well, I think it's very, very important. And most coaches are, with their team, even more regimented with the team than I am. Individually, since it's a two-part, you're asking about myself, individually, I believe in pushing myself very, very hard. If I'm a coach, I want to set a positive example, and it's even more important now that I'm older. When I'm younger, I tended to just be in better shape than most of the kids to begin with, and I was always working out. Now that you're older, it's although the kids would be understanding, but I want it to be that I'm in great shape. So I work out every single day, every single day, so that I'm setting a good example for the kids. There has to be a certain structure with the kids. If you say you want them there a certain time, and I'm much more flexible than most people, you have to, we want you there. Now, if a kid's not there, some people will do things where uh, laps, I never do laps because my sport is running, so I'm not going to punish them with running. Right. But I will talk with them. Now, I'm going to use now with Holy Angels, but it could have been Saddlebrook. Uh, Columbia University College is different. All right? Um, sometimes kids can't help it. We have a rule. If you have to make up a test, if you have to go for extra help, not because you want to talk with your friends, but if you have to do something to help you academically, and of course Holy Angels is a top school academically in New Jersey, that comes first. But I always tell them, I will wait no matter how late. When you're finished with your makeup test, when you're finished with your extra help, you then come to practice. You still must come to practice. I will wait for you. I'm lucky I have a very understanding wife. I will wait for you, and then we'll do the practice after. As a coach, I always try to be there 10, 15 minutes early so that I'm the first coach there. And even though as a youngster, Tardiness could have been a problem for myself. But as a coach, I have to set the example. Unless there's something specific where I have to leave early, let's say it's for the all-county meeting or something like that, um, almost always I will be the last coach to leave. Some coaches will have a meeting with all the coaches. 
If you're in football, you really want to soccer. In track, there's something I don't. When you're finished with, when the sprint coach is finished, you're finished, just let me know how everything went, you can leave. You don't have to wait, all right? You don't have to wait around just for the sake of waiting around for me. Right. But I usually, in general, want to be the first one there and the last one to leave. You were in the Army, uh, and you were an officer in the Army, and you were in the ROTC in college at CCNY, back when CCNY was an outstanding institution. Um, what would you... Uh, how did the Army influence you, and did it uh, uh, have a positive influence on your, preparing you from a leadership standpoint? What did you learn from, from being in the armed forces? Okay, uh, I was very fortunate, all right? I was an uh, infantry lieutenant for two years. I never had to go to Vietnam, so I never had to see combat. I didn't get killed, maimed, hurt or any of the mental things that happen to people in combat. So for me, the two years that I was in the Army were incredibly beneficial for me. I probably learned more in those two years in the Army than I did in anything I had in school as far as leadership. I really learned leadership in the Army. Some of the things I kind of understood beforehand, but other things I learned in the Army, I learned when you're working with people, how to motivate people, even though it's a situation where if they didn't do what they were supposed to do, they could be in the stockade. But still, when they were motivated properly, the men who were in charge of, they would perform much better. So that the Army, to me, was incredibly beneficial, incredibly beneficial, helped me incredibly as a coach and as a teacher. And I have to say, since I went in, I was 21 to do it. On a side thing, it helped me tremendously to grow up and become independent. So to me, the Army was a very, very positive thing that helped me uh, in a great, great way. So let's talk a little bit about adversity. Everybody goes through adversity. You've been fortunate enough to be uh, very successful as a coach. Um, fortunate enough on the professional side um, to be very successful. Growing up um, was a tougher environment. What were, what were some of the things, you, you know, you, you learned growing up in, in a tougher environment, growing up with not a lot of money, um, it divorced parents before, you know, that was, you know, now it's commonplace, you had to divorce yourself. What, what could people, what did you learn when adversity hit that others, that you're able to impart, you know, to your athletes? What, what were some of the things that you learned? As a kid growing up, basically, I was just trying to hang on there and survive. And I, what I tried to do was, uh, as a teenager, to somehow give myself a philosophy of life. Now that sounds dramatic, so believe me, I wasn't sitting there trying to make life, but I was trying to figure out how I wanted to live my life as a teenager. And I wasn't dwelling on it, basically I say I was trying to survive. But then as I kept getting older and older and things were happening, I was able to make the philosophies of what I wanted to do with my life and let it coincide with things like coaching 
So I started to realize as I got older that the world did not revolve around me. And once I realized that, then I was in a much better way in life when I would try. Obviously, I wanted to be the best I could be in everything, but I also tried to impart that to others. And in doing that, that made me a better person, a happier person, and a much more productive person in life. And I think that even though there were things growing up that were tough and I didn't understand, I was trying to, but in a way, if my life had been just easy, I might not have been trying to figure these things out and I might not have been as successful as I've been able to be. So I'm not gonna say it was a blessing, but in a way, it, it certainly wasn't a curse. It helped me tell to make me the person that I became and that I wanted to become, even though I didn't have a role model myself as a uh, uh, youngster. How, how would you advise? That, that's a, there's a lot of kids now that don't have role models, right, that, that can help them through things. How, what, what kind of advice would you give to a, a, a young man or girl um, that doesn't have a role model, is in a tougher situation, and has to figure it out? You know, it's so difficult nowadays with so many, so many youngsters, uh, a one-parent family or no-parent family. You have to hope that you're given the di right direction by someone, whether it's a father, if there's not a father, then a mother. Was or this grandma. Was your mother that person? My mother did. She set the tone as far as we had to be honest. We couldn't be, uh, uh, even in school, uh, we didn't have to be great students, but we, we couldn't be getting in trouble. That was not gonna be acceptable. We had to look out after our other brothers and sisters. So that tone was there for me. So I did have a basic structure that helped me. But then, since you're kind of on your own a lot, I have to say, when I went into college and I was really lost as far as what I was going to do, I must admit that one of the things that did give me some structure, and I don't want to overemphasize it, was the Army when I was training there. So as an example... This was the ROTC. ROTC. So as an example, I would not have thought anything about cheating. I'm just being honest. Alright? As a matter of fact, uh, when I was in high school, my Spanish, first of all, I never studied. I was in my Spanish class, I'm getting, every test, I'm getting an A. I turned to the girl in front of me, she's a cute girl, I like she's a sweet girl, I said, she's amazing. I said, I don't know anything that's going on, I must be brilliant, I'm getting an A in every single test. She said, yes, it's because he lets me mark the test and I give you an A. <laughs> so, that was kind of the world that I was in then when I, I went in college the first year, I went in, and then I'm in ROTC, and, and believe me, I wouldn't, I, I, I'd come on time, I'd be doing push-ups all over the place because I said, I'm on time. And I said, okay, that's another 50 push-ups because you're not on time unless you're 10 minutes early. I, I, it took me a year to figure that one out. But by that one, I was probably the strongest guy in the, the whole 1,000 ROTC guys. The second thing, they had an honor code. And I said, I, I cheat with, and their honor codes, if you're here, we have an honor code. You can't cheat in anything. 
Because what if something happens and, did it, and you're in a situation that's life and death and you cheated and you didn't know? So I took it to heart. I said, okay, I'm not going to do From now on, I'm just doing my own work. Now, sometimes it would backfire. I was in a human anatomy class and everyone there was six on a table. And unfortunately, the professor, when he gave a test, would read the New York Times while he gave the test. So everybody in the class cooperated for their answers but me, because I had the honor code. So everyone in the class got an A and I got a D. Not that they knew any more than me, but five brains were better than one. However, it was the best thing that could happen to me because I did do that, I would no matter what, and it gave me confidence in myself that regardless of what I got, and I did graduate, and I did get a master's, regardless of what I got, I got it myself. I knew that I could do it. So that, that helped me a lot. And then as things went on, you know, and you go on in life, and you get older, you start to mature, and you really start to get a better base of what you want to do in your life, what you want to accomplish, and hopefully it's in a positive way, which I think mine was, and you just keep trying to do the right thing, and I think that's what's helped me be successful, and I believe it has helped many, many, many of the athletes I've coached have a better life. When, By the way, I want to add one thing on that. Sure. It is vital, and as a coach, I can't say won hundreds of championships, not just dual meets. It is vital for a coach, and this is very difficult for coaches motivated. It is vital that as much as you want your team to win and be successful, that you do not do anything that is wrong for an athlete that you coach. And sometimes that happens even to the best of coaches, and it never is good for the athlete, and it really is not good for the coach. Um, I remember you saying to me, you talked about your great-grandfather who came over from Poland, and you learned something really important from him. Um, maybe give the backdrop of that story about what his situation, what he was, and what you learned from how, how he was. I think it's really interesting because it kind of, in a, in a strange way, set the tone for almost everything that you end up doing. Not that you meant it to be that way, but it's something that stuck with you always. Okay, well, you know, it's interesting because uh, that was a lesson learned and a positive thing. Now, my grandfather came from this, came to this country. Actually, he escaped from the other country. Uh, there was anti-Semitism. I believe he killed someone right. on it. He came to the country uh, or he would not have been alive. Uh, whatever he did, not that I was cognizant of it, was certainly on the left side of the law. But in any case, when I was still in the business school the first year, we had to do a project on, we had to go to a lab, we had to do some kind of a flow, whatever it was. In any case, I did not know anyone. My mother said, well, you know, uh, her father, my grandfather, he has all these contacts in the garment district, just go down there with him and he'll take care of it. Well, we went down there with him, regardless of what his relationship was, and they bent over backwards to show me for the work. Not that I can remember anything about what I did for the class, 
But what I do remember is this. When we left the factory, we walked outside and we were in Lower Manhattan, or Mid Manhattan, and there was a homeless man on the street and uh, he was disheveled and he came over and I was 19, I'm really feeling my oats, lifting, pull it, you name it. I thought it was so tremendous. My grandfather was like 75 and he came over to us and said, could you let me have a, a dime or whatever it was back then? And I said, hey, get away from us, you so-and-so. And my grandfather, 75, grabbed my arm and told me, shut up. You, I said, I said, Grandpa, he's a bum. And he said, you don't know what this man may have had happen in his life, that he is this way. Now you shut up and you just follow me. And he went over to the man. He said, I'm not giving you money because I don't want to give it to you to get a drink. But he took him into this little restaurant or whatever it was and got him a cup of coffee and something to eat. And then we left. And I had to say, that made an incredible impression on me as a 19-year-old that don't be judging people so quickly. And I realized I was wrong and I had great respect for my grandfather because he taught me a great lesson without preaching the lesson to me. Right, right, which I think is, it, it is really interesting by showing Yes. You what the what the act uh, of kindness for someone that's down right. uh, is really interesting. Instead of just telling, you know, so so often people are always telling people what they should do, um, but by showing them the the way, it leaves an an uh, even more valuable impression. Okay, I think I think I've covered most of what I wanted. It was, Incredible interview. Um, I want to just go through a, a couple things, and you know, you can give me some of your fairly quick answers uh, uh, to it. What motivates you every day to to cut up a coach at seventy five years old? I love what I do. If you love what you do, you have a great chance of being successful at it. Every day I get up, I look forward to it because I love coaching and coaching the kids that I coach. It's as simple as that. The passion and love for what you're doing is, is, is everything. It's something that I truly believe in. Um, wh- who would you say is a mentor of yours or someone that was a mentor of yours, coaching or life? I mean, either. You know, there was a coach I coached with in Saddlebrook named Darren White who was very successful and uh, a good person. And he had a class and they had to interview someone and he asked me that. And I'm going to, it reminds me, this is about 15, 20 years ago. I honestly did not have a mentor. That's interesting. I have, I know everybody has. I had none. I give you these little vignettes of where I try to piece things together, but I absolutely had no mentor. I, I think my mother tried to put me on the right track as a little kid. Right. I find it interesting because right, there's so many people have a mentor and right. try to search for a mentor. Right. And when you read all these success, uh, uh, you, you read all these these quote unquote success people or um, uh, all these professionals. One of the only guys who I've never seen say that actually is Tony Robbins. Doesn't say that you, he doesn't say that you need a mentor. It has to come from yourself. But so many other people always say that's why it's interesting to hear you say. No, because I know almost everyone says that. But I, I'm being honest. Yeah, I that's, have none. That's incredibly interesting. Um, what would you say? I mean, it, it is your best memories as a coach? One or two of your best memories? 
I have so many, it's incredible. Yeah. But I'll start with saying, and obviously Dave says, right. my son, coaching my own children, my son Dave, my son Danny, my daughter Jackie, uh, there is no way that anything in this world could replace how enjoyable that was, even though there were ups and downs athletically. Right. But coaching your own kids is incredible. Then the other thing, I can't add a saying because there are so many athletes that I've coached and teams I've coached that have been wonderful and such wonderful memories that I actually just can't pass put one because there's so many at every place I've been. When I was in New York and Harlem, even when I was in Kennedy for the year, um, at, at Columbia for the two years, so good memory. Saddlebrook, 30 years, great memory. Holy Angels, great. There's so many that I just can't put one because there are so many. That, that's and that's why, that's how lucky I am. That's definitely very lucky. Uh, at sidebar, I didn't have this in my question, but can you guesstimate how many championships you've won? Just out of curiosity. I know it's well over 100, you know. Since we're talking and no one can debate it, I'll say 200. <laughs> <laughs> uh, best uh, I, uh, books that you've read that really stand out uh, to you? You know, I read voraciously. I am a big, big reader, and I'm a big reader on uh, uh, sports and on the athletics and uh, coaching and the specific techniques, etc. I still do to this day. My wife's always asking me, why do you keep bringing in more and more books? Because you're never too old to learn. I still go to clinics. Most of the things, yes, I could teach it myself, but even if I get one, one thing that helps me. Do you have a favorite book? If, uh, no, because I have like, I'm going to say I have 40 of them that I've read. And, and all of them have something that contributes to what I like uh, about them. You know, some of them are technical books. Some of them are uh, coaching things that uh, these are ideas that other coaches, when I was younger, I would read to get their ideas on motivation, etc. Are there any books that you would recommend? For, for somebody maybe in your field? Or you know, there are, but I'd, have, coaching to go, I'd have to go down to my basement <laughs> because I have them. There are books. There are books. Now, nowadays, by the way, a coach can just go as far as technical things. A coach can go on the Internet right. and go on YouTube, and it's better even than the book because you can see it. Right. I happen to like the book also because I can digest it and think it through, although you can rerun it and rerun it on YouTube, but as far as um, how to relate to the athletes, some of it may be God-given, but a lot of it you can also learn and make yourself better at. And some of these books have helped me on that too. If you could go back to when you were 25 years old and talk to your 25-year-old self, is there something that you, you would advise him? Yes. Sometimes when I was younger, I was too hard on the athletes I coached. All right? There were t to this day, I still believe in, in you've got to push the athletes. I have a great hurdler, and uh, she's uh, one of the best hurdlers, not only in the state, but in the nation. And I push her hard. I know sometimes she gets mad at me, but that's okay because I'm, I'm doing it properly. But when I was younger, sometimes I would push the athletes 
so hard. Be not just push them, which you should, but be on their case every single moment. That it's a miracle how understanding they were. And the only reason I can think that they were is because they knew that I did care about them. All right. So if I had to do it over, the only thing I would do over <laughs> when I was younger is uh, I, I would have toned down just how aggressively I was on these athletes, you know, and it's a miracle how understanding they were. Um, there's a lot of parents now that, that I guess more youth sports, but uh, you got to coach your own kids, that, which is a delicate, delicate balance, right? Um, what, what, how would you advise parents, you know, having raised children that when were college athletes, um, how would you advise parents that are maybe coaching their own kids or their kids want, you know, want to be very good athletes? How, how do you help them along that process in a delicate way so they still can be the parent, but also can help them to get um, the athlete where they maybe visualize and the athlete wants to be? That's a, a tough thing. That's a good question. If the parent is coaching the child themselves, you know, I would advise them, remember that you're still that child's parent and that child needs your love, not just your coaching. If they're hiring somebody, which is what's very popular now, make sure you get someone who not only is knowledgeable but will care about the welfare of your child. If I get someone who's coached their child and now I'm coaching them, basically what I will say to the parent is this here, all right? Let me do the coaching. Let me be the good guy and the bad guy, and you be the parent right. and love the child because I'm going to push them very, very hard. It, it, they don't need me to push them so hard. Then they go home and the parent to push them so hard. Now, if they had someone who's not pushing them or not a good coach, then it's a problem for the parent. But I assure, reassure the parent, here's where I'm lucky that I have my background, that your child is in good hands, and I'll tell them my own background and I'm going to do everything to make your child be the best they can be. You just be the parent and be supportive of them. And I think that's very important. When I coached my own children, and Dave may not remember this, but at that time we used to videotape what we did in the meet. We came back from a meet, we put the videotape, everybody's fighting with everybody, yelling at everybody, why don't you listen to that? okay. I realized, forget that. After the, <laughs> after the game's over, the meet's over, I think it's time, we've got to be a parent, let's just eat our meal, enjoy ourselves, and we'll worry about everything in practice. That's really good. And on that note, I, I thank you very much for, for the interview. Thank really, 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 really interesting. Um, not just uh, as, you know, obviously we want to help other people, but as your son to hear, uh, probably the stuff I've heard most of my life, but you know, really hear your perspective on everything. Thanks, Dave. It was a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, that was good. Hey, that was philosophy in a nutshell. <laughs>